Well, good morning. It's great to gather with you all this morning. Um, so I've mentioned it before. I grew up in Coffeyville, and Coffeyville is kind of known for a couple things. Uh, Dalton Gang. If you're a history buff, we are probably on the map because of the Dalton Gang. And I think it's been for maybe the past 10 years, Coffeyville has been known for being one of the worst places to live in Kansas. Uh, I think we were ranked number seven for a while. And uh, I would like to say it's not true, but they take into a lot of different factors. And we're probably deserving of that ranking. I love Coffeyville, but it's not necessarily the best place to be. Uh, when I was in high school, there's a point to this too, but when I was in high school, uh, we were out riding our bikes around the community college one evening. It was probably about one o'clock in the morning and nothing good happens after dark. I am now a firm believer of that, sundown, I'm down. Uh, and so it was like, I was late, we were out and about, we were riding bikes around the community college. We decide, you know what, it's late enough, let's head back. So we, we start heading over to the truck and then we hear this guy call out to us and he's like, hey, hey, are you, are you guys Mike? And it's like, uh, you Mike? No, there's four of us. None of us were Mike. And so it's like, no, we're, we're not Mike. And he's like, no, no, you're, you're Mike. And he gets up close to us and he's, he's a big old football player and we're, we're kind of smaller. And he grabs my brother's bike and he's like, you're Mike. And suddenly we realize he's not alone as eight other guys come out of nowhere and it's like, we're definitely not Mike. Like, I don't know who you think Mike is. It's not us. And they decide to try and jump us. And I don't know if you've ever seen any like uh, Walker, Texas Rangers, any Bruce Lee, Jet Lee, Jackie Chan. I brought out my inner one of them. I mean, just pull up an old recording, watch that, and you would see exactly what I did not do. Because I ran. And we all, it was like, all right, we're doing the math. Y'all got at least a ton on our weight, on our body size. Y'all are bigger. You're football players. You're just going to have your way with us. We're going to get out of Dodge. We got bicycles. We're going. And so we weren't far from the police station, and we ran to the police station as fast as we could. And we got there, and we're, we're reporting it to the cops, and we're like, hey, you know what? There's just like eight dudes come out of nowhere, and they, they jumped us, and uh, we, we don't know what's going on. Can you all look at it just as a little tribute to Coffeyville? They said, we can't really. Somebody got stabbed, ran over, and then backed back up over tonight. That's where all our resources are. And so I was like, well, thanks. We're going to hang out here for a little bit because we were looking for refuge, and that's really what everybody's looking for whenever we encounter times of trouble. We're looking for that place that we can go and seek shelter. In war-torn countries, they're called refugees. They are people who are trying to get out of their dangerous, their hostile situation, and they are trying to get to a place where they can find shelter, they can find safety, and they can find provision. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. As we're continuing on in our series, as we're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament, and we're working through each book of the Bible week by week, and we are just seeing how does Jesus fall into this book? How does the Old Testament point to who Jesus is? Because it's not just New Testament stuff, but remember, Jesus, whenever he went to tell people who he was, pointed to the Old Testament. 
He, on the Emmaus Road, he started with Moses and the prophets and said, all of them point to who I am. When Philip was doing his ministry and he finds the Ethiopian eunuch, he is reading Isaiah. And Philip starts with Isaiah and says, all of this points to who Jesus is, that the Old Testament tells us about who Jesus is. It's important for us to know these passages. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 20 this morning. As we're now entering into a new rule in Israel, because Israel has been led by Moses for the past 40 years in the wilderness. So you have Genesis, the creation of mankind, then it starts being honed in on Abraham and his descendants who are called the Israelites. And then Exodus, we see that 70 people have now become over a million people. And now we are following their story. As they were exited out of Egypt by God, they were given the law on Mount Sinai. They are now heading towards the promised land. They rebel against God. They complain against God. And so they have to wander for 40 years. An entire generation dies. And now this new generation gets to enter into the promised land. And that's where we're at in the book of Joshua. As we now have this new leader arising, his name is Joshua. And God gives him a command as he is about ready to enter into this promised land, the fulfillment of the promise that God gave Abraham over 500 years prior. And God says, you're getting ready to go in, but don't be afraid. He says over and over in Joshua 1 verse 9 is actually a very well-known passage where God says it, but he says it three other times in the first chapter. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Imagine being called into this land that you've never entered in. Joshua had been there before. He was one of the spies. But being told to go in and you're going to conquer this land. And hearing God tell you that. Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be frightened. For I am with you wherever you go. He's with us here and now. So let's go before God in prayer, and then we'll dive into Joshua. So Father God, we just come before you, and thank you so much for everything you have done. And God, thank you that the same command that you give Joshua is the same one that you give us, that we are to be strong and courageous in you because you are with us wherever we go. And so God, you're here now. You have come into our lives and you are with us as we gather together. And so God, I pray that here and now we just open up our hearts to you, that we make room for your spirit to enter in. It's with us, but that we open ourselves up to seeing who you are and to opening our hearts to the moving of the spirit so that your message can go forth. So God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen. So we're gonna be in Joshua, a real quick overview of Joshua. Joshua is the first of the 12 historical books of the Bible. 
It's broke down in your outline there that the Bible is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law, and then you enter into the historical books, which is Joshua all the way to Esther. Then you get poetry and then you get the prophets. So we are now entering into that historical timeline of how your Bible is broken down. The name is Joshua, named after the central figure of the book. Joshua is the central figure aside from God, obviously, but he is the successor to Moses. The audience is the second generation, I'm skipping here, but the main audience is that second generation of Israel. They're entering into the promised land, and now Joshua is journaling kind of what is going on, and later on, it's that historical remembrance of this is how you entered into the promised land. This is everything God did for you. The dates of the event, they hover around 1405 to 1390 BC. From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 24, you span about 15 years there. With the breakdown, you got one month, the first five chapters, seven years, the middle section, and then the last section where Joshua is telling everybody, these are the divisions of your land, takes about eight years time. I skipped the author, it's Joshua, so easy to say there. Paul doesn't have the answers today, by the way, so don't go ask Paul Yeager for the answers. Um, So the main people in the book, you have, we mentioned it, Joshua, you have Caleb, who is one of the two spies, Joshua being one of the spies that went into the promised land before they wandered and said, it is ripe for the picking. God is with us. Let's go. And then the 10 other spies said, no, we're not going in there. Grapes and clusters fall. Giants are big and tall. We're scared. And so they don't go and they end up needing to wander for 40 years. And then you also have the nation of Israel. There's a lot that happens, especially in the first about 13 chapters of Joshua. You have Joshua succeeding Moses as the leader of Israel. A second group of spies goes into Canaan to spy out the land. This time they come back with a good report, and it's in that time that Rahab hides two of those spies and and protects them and sends them on their way. And she is in the hall of faith. For that act, you have the people cross Jordan on dry land. You have the dividing of the Red Sea in Exodus. In Joshua, you have the dividing of the Jordan, where the waters wall up and the people walk across on dry land. You have the famous one, the fall of Jericho, where the grapes throw slushies over on people. Any Veggie Tail fans in here? Couple, apparently. You have the people were told when they enter Jericho, destroy everything, and the people already are disobeying God as they come and they hold back some of the devoted things. And so they go to battle against AI and not artificial intelligence, but another land, and they go to battle against them and they lose because of their sin against God already. Then you see the rest of the conquering of the land of Canaan. You see the division of the land among all the tribes, and then it ends with Joshua giving his farewell address before he dies. The two locations of Joshua are pretty much the east side of the Jordan River, where the book of Numbers ended and Deuteronomy ended, and then they enter into 
the promised land. And then the last section, Joshua is addressing because two tribes wanted to stay east of the Jordan. And so Joshua addresses both groups, the 12 tribes on both sides of the Jordan. The main theme that you will see over and over throughout the book of Joshua is it is a book of conquest, but you will see over and over it is a book of victory. That victory comes, but it's not because of how great your military is, but instead it's because of the faith and the God that goes with them. You see that specifically in the story of Jericho where God tells them you are going to march around for six days around the city of Jericho one time and you're not gonna make any noise. And then on that seventh day, you're gonna march around it six times. And then on the seventh time, that's when you're all gonna yell and the walls will come tumbling down. And it's not gonna be because you wage war. You didn't take a battering ram against the city. It's because God goes before you. Remember, be strong and courageous because God is with you wherever you go. Another, another uh, theme that you will see through it is you are seeing the promise fulfilled that was given to Abraham all the way in Genesis chapter 12, verse one through three, where God says, you're gonna be a people, you're gonna be a nation, you're gonna be a blessing, and you're going to receive a land. And they are ultimately now receiving the fulfillment of that five, roughly 500 years later. They're now receiving the fulfillment of the promise. It can be divided into roughly two parts. The first part is kind of narrative, and that is the conquest part, where they go in and they are conquering all of Canaan. And then the second part is the division part, where Joshua is now allotting the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we have three typologies that you will see through it. Joshua himself is a typology. A lot of it is in his name even. Joshua's name means that he is, it was started out as Yehoshua, then it became Heshua, which is the equivalent of Jesus in Greek. So his name is the same, but also he leads people. Where we saw last week that Moses was unable to lead the people into the promised land, today Joshua leads the people as God through Jesus leads us into eternal life. You see what is called a Christophany, which is a visual appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And you see that in the commander of the Lord's army in the Joshua, I think it's chapter five. And then the last one, and this is where we're gonna kind of land this morning is in the cities of refuge. Where Joshua, the backstory on these is that God sees that the people of Israel are about to enter into this new land. And remember, he gave them the law. And then he also gave them, this is how you are going to run as a nation. There was the ceremonial law, the moral law, but then there was that civil law. This is how you govern as a people of God. And God understood that we are vindictive and we are vengeful people. And so he established in Numbers chapter 35, these cities of refuge. Because he understood, uh, we, we, we like to like retaliate on people. I mean, if, if you don't know that that's true, just go drive in the city and let somebody cut you off and see how you respond. We put Isaiah behind the steering wheel of our car a couple times. You need to pray for that child because he already is, ah, get out of my way. We're that way. 
Somebody cuts us off, we want to tell them what number they really are in our book. We want to cut them off. We want to ride their tail. We want to seek out vengeance. And so what God understands is that there's going to be times where people are going to die. And what we're going to want is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We're coming, but sometimes they're innocent. Sometimes mistakes happen. But in our anger, when that happens, we just see red. We don't care if it was an accident or not. And so God established these cities of refuge so that the, they call it the manslayer. The, the guy who accidentally killed somebody can run to these cities and find refuge. Because during this time, there's not a police force. And so it was up to families to avenge the blood of a relative. If, if somebody would come and they would murder my brother, it is up to me and my dad to seek them out and be the avenger of blood. But sometimes, as we've already said, accidents happen. Numbers 35 talks about that. Where if, if you're in an argument and I pick up a blunt iron object and I smack somebody across the head and they die, that's murder. If I lie in wait and then they come out and I push them and they die, it's because the intent of my heart is evil and God says that's murder. But if we get in a little kerfuffle and I push and you trip and hit your head, well, that's an accident. I didn't want to kill somebody. And so I flee to the city of refuge. So Joshua chapter 20 God is telling Joshua to now establish these. And so he says, the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person, keyword here, without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. And so what we see is kind of what we were saying is that if you accidentally murder, not murder, because it's accidental. If you accidentally kill somebody, these cities were centrally located. The Levites weren't given an allotment of land. They were given 48 cities. Six of them were to be these cities of refuge so that if that incident happened, you could make haste and get there as fast as possible. They were close in proximity to pretty much everybody. The roads were to be constantly paved, and, or maybe not paved, but groomed and easy so that you could get there fast. You'd get to the entrance. You would pre present your case to the elders, and then they would have kind of a little jury. All right, we've heard the case. Was there intent? If you're found guilty of murder, you're handed over to the avenger of blood, and he avenges the blood. But if you're found innocent, then you stay in that city until the high priest dies. And if you leave that city, it's fair game. You are to stay there and not leave for any reason. 
This is what we see in Jesus, though. That as these cities of refuge were for people guilt or innocent who were accused of murder to run and find shelter, we run to Jesus and we find refuge in him. As these were cities of refuge, Jesus is our city of refuge. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews chapter 6, 18, he says that by two unchangeable things in which it is, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have see the visual here have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, the city of refuge was a place for the manslayer to run to. Jesus is the place for the sinner to run to. That we flee to Jesus. That the consequences of our sin is death. That we are constantly being pursued by death. Doctors are in a game of trying to prolong it, but death always wins. But there's even a worse death. That is the first death. The second death is the eternal damnation in the lake of fire that was created for Satan and his followers. But that is the one that is coming for us. That there is a first death that we all suffer. But there is a second death that is also coming for every single one of us. And we flee from that death to Jesus. He is our refuge. I mean, look at society today. Look at how much society is trying to find refuge in things. People who have difficult home lives, they're just like, all right, I'm going to invest everything I can into work so that I don't have to go home. And then when I get off work, I'm going to invest everything I have into an, a, a substance of some form. So that way I don't have to deal with reality. And my, my home life is bad. My, my life in general is bad. So I'm just going to try and drown out the noise. Be it with drink or drugs or affairs or, or any kind of release we can get to get us out of reality because people are constantly looking for releases and for refuge from the world, from the stresses of life. People, a lot of parents are seeking it out in their kids. I mean, there's shows like Little Miss Beauty Pageants where you see little kids going through such crazy things and parents are trying to live through their children so that they can get away from the realities of this world. Like there are so many things that we are seeking refuge from. So many things that we are running to to find that refuge. It's work, it's toys, it's possessions, it's careers, it's, it's family even. It can be so many different things, but we all are trying to get away from something. We all are trying to drown out the difficulties of this world. And Jesus says, come to me. He says in Matthew, I think it's chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, I want to be your refuge. Don't run to drugs because they're going to just make you want more. Don't run to work because it's never going to satisfy. Don't even run to your family because it is not going to be able to give you the refuge that I can give you. Solomon told us that in Ecclesiastes. 
He says, I looked for the, the meaning of life and everything, and I looked for a way to get out of this despair that I was in. And over and over, I found it was the same thing. It was all vanity. It was all meaningless. Anything you run to to find refuge in this world outside of Jesus is going to leave you longing for more. And so Jesus tells us, I'm that city of refuge. You're being pursued by stress. You're being pursued by strife. You're being pursued by death as the manslayer. Once, once he would see that he was, that, that the avenger of blood was going to be coming for him, do you think that he sat there and was like, you know what, I'm going to go grab Mickey D's real quick. I'm going to go sit at the park, watch the ducks, call it good, enjoy life, and then I'll decide to get to the city of refuge? Not when you know there's a bounty on your head. When he knows that avenger of blood is coming for him, he is dropping everything that he can, and he is making a straight line for the city of refuge, the closest destination he can to find safety and shelter. That's what we're told to do with Jesus. That when we see that the things of this world will never satisfy, that when we see that we're running to all these other things and we're trying to like drag along my work and drag along my possessions and carry all of these things to Jesus with me so that I can have them also, they're dragging us down. Hebrews tells us that what we do is we let go let us throw aside all the sin that entangles us and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we let go of everything. We see that it's dragging us down. Now, parents, this is not saying, well, just let go of your kids. Like, all right, I'm supposed to feed you to the wolves. This does not mean you let go on your responsibilities here. But what it means is that you let go of the sin that is entangling you. You drop it because you know your life is in danger and you run to the city of refuge, Jesus. So here's some comparisons about how Jesus and the cities of refuge are alike. First off, both of them are within easy reach. That when Joshua, Moses and Joshua were told, this is where you should put the cities of refuge, they should not be far from any town, but they should be easily accessible. So God tells us in Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, that he is near to the brokenhearted, that he is close at hand. Jesus tells us all you have to do is ask, seek, and knock. That when you ask, you will receive. When you seek, you will find. And when you knock, the door will be open to you. He is easy to find and within reach. There's not a series of hoops that you have to jump through. It's not like, okay, I got to, anybody ever done an escape room? Where like in order to get out, you have to find all these other clues first. That's not how it works with Jesus. It's not like, well, first off, you got to go here, and then you got to go all the way over there, and then you have to perform this task, and then you have to solve this puzzle, and then maybe you found the key that will open the door. But it's actually a dummy key, and it's going to do nothing. Instead, Jesus is easy to find. He is within reach. He says in Jeremiah 29, you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. He's not hiding He's not waiting for you to solve some puzzle. He's saying, I am here and I am present and I am ready to be found. I am within reach. But the catch is, 
you have to run to him. You have to turn around. That's what it means to repent. That I was going away from Jesus and I just have to repent. I change my mind. I turn around and I go towards Jesus. And the thing is, he's not 20 miles away. He is right there. That when you turn around, Jesus is present and ready for you to find him. Both are within easy reach. Both are open to everyone. The cities of refuge were not just for Israelites. They were also for sojourners. Joshua 20 verse 9 says, These were the cities designated, designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them. They were open for all. The same for Jesus. He is not just for the rich elites. He is not just for the ones that have their lives all figured out. He is not just for Americans. He is not just for Republicans or Democrats. He is for everyone. We're told that God desires for all men to be saved. That Jesus so loved the world. God so loved the world. He loved every single one that he gave his only son. Romans 10 tells us, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is available for everyone. Both are open to everyone. Both are places in which you must live. Jesus calls for us not just to come to him, but then he says, abide in me as I abide in you, that we are called to come and live in Jesus, walking with him. It's not just a, hey, I'm gonna come, all right, I got Jesus, I'll catch you next week. But it's a, Jesus, I come to you, and I come to stay in you, and I come to live with you. I want you to, real quickly, think, of, it's not gonna be pleasant, but think of all the, like, those times in your life where you're just like, man, I really regret that decision. How many of those times can you look back and be like, yep, I was totally walking with God when I made that mistake. I was totally living in line with God's will. I, I was totally being obedient to God's word. For me, the ones that really pop out in my mind are the ones where it was like, God, I knew what you said and I stepped outside of your will. I stepped outside of what you said is right and true and good and just. And I sought my own ways. Now, again, there's going to be times, because I deal with a lot of other people, and so do you, that there are times that I do the right thing, and it still is a headache. But I don't have regret when I do the right thing. I don't have regret when I was obedient to God and it didn't work out because the other party was not obedient to God as well. Yes, sinners, I'm the same way. But I have regret when I step outside of God's will and I look back and I see that I wish I never did. We are called to come and live in Jesus. Both are also the only alternative to saving your life. There was no other way if you were guilty of being the manslayer and you had taken somebody's life innocently, that you couldn't run to another city. You couldn't run to one of the 42 other Levitical cities and be like, I need refuge here. There was only one place you could go, the city of refuge. There is only one place you can go to find salvation for your life. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. There is salvation by no other, or 4, verse 12. There is no other name by which you can be saved. 
It is only Jesus. He is the only alternative to facing eternal death in hell. Both provide protection within their boundaries. We kind of already talked about this. You had to live within them. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, John tells us that if you keep on sinning, you're not a child of God. For anyone who has been born again cannot keep on sinning, does not make a practice of sinning. And so we are called to be within the protection of God. Both find freedom with the death of the high priest. When you were in the city of refuge, you had to stay there until the high priest died. Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews chapter, excuse me, 4 verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is our great high priest. He gave his life so that we can have life. As the, city of, as the cities of refuge were to the Israelites, Jesus is the same thing to us, but there is one big difference. And it's a, it's a huge difference. Notice that we've been saying during the cities of refuge, you have to be innocent. It's, it's that kind of uh, killing by accident, that, that your, your reaction got the best of you, you didn't intend for it to happen. But if you are guilty, the city of refuge is told to cast you out and you face the consequences. But Jesus isn't for the innocent. Jesus is for the guilty. Jesus knows that it's not an accidental sin that I made, even though I do sins of omission. But it is the committed sin. The ones where I said, God, I know exactly what your word says, and I am going to go against your word. And Jesus came to give us refuge from those. It's not the innocent. It's the guilty that Jesus came to save. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 tells us that. If while we were enemies, Christ died for us, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We found refuge in Jesus while we were enemies, while we were fighting against God, while we were breaking his law, while we were by nature children of wrath. Jesus says, come to me still. If I lie in wait and I murder somebody, I know I'm guilty. And I know that I deserve death. And that is actually what I am going to receive. But through Jesus, he took the death that I was supposed to pay. And he took it upon himself so that now I can live. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, no, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. That he died the death we were supposed to die so that we can run to Jesus and find refuge, not just refuge from eternal hell, refuge from the heartache of this world, 
refuge from the struggles of today. That Jesus doesn't just want your eternity, he wants your here and now. He wants you to live your life for him. And he says at this moment, come to me, all you who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest because I am your source of refuge. You can look for it in, in everything else, but you're not gonna find it. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for Jesus. I was thinking about that the other day, about thirsting for God. How so often, you know, like right now my mouth is a little parched and man, I'd love some water. But what we're told in the Psalms is in a dry and weary land, my soul cries out for you. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts after you. That that is what it means to thirst after God. That it's 105 degrees outside, your machinery broke down, you're working on it, and you just want a drink. That's how we are to long for God. That you see that there is a price on your head and you are fleeing to the city of refuge. That is how you are to flee and run to Jesus because there is no other alternative. He is the only one. And you come to him guilty and he sets you free. Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are founding, for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you come to him guilty. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we can take on his righteousness, that we can be set free, that we are now free to abide in him. Take on his yoke for his burden is light and his yoke is easy. And so we live in him. Jesus is your only source of refuge today. Whatever it is that you're seeking, as Gene talked about in the meditation, we want to control everything. We want to we take everything and be in control. And what Jesus is saying, let it all go. Throw off everything that hinders you, everything that entangles you, and run to Jesus, fixing your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Whatever it is that you're running after, stop, repent, turn around, and run to Jesus. Father God, I thank you that you are within reach, that you are here and now, and you're not just here for those of us who have given our lives to you and found salvation in Jesus. God, you are here for those who just last night committed an egregious offense against you. And you are here saying, I died for that sin so that you can come to me and find refuge and find freedom from the guilt and shame. Because as your word says, there is no condemnation for those who are in you. And so God, I just pray that we see you for who you are, that we let go of everything in this world so that we can pursue after you and that we, as you promise, We'll find refuge in you. God, help us just see you for who you are and that we will run to you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.